0: everybody, and welcome to the second session in There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. This week, we begin The Hobbit, we meet our hero Bilbo Baggins, we encounter Gandalf, and we have an unexpected party with a boatload of dwarves. Boatload, I think, is the preferred collective noun for dwarves. We might also accept a confustication of dwarves. We'll talk more about that later. As ever, you can take part in the live discussion, either via the YouTube chat window or via Twitter using the hashtag back again, which it turns out is a surprisingly popular hashtag for those who are returning to Twitter after a brief hiatus. So the back again feed this week has been populated by people saying incredibly smart things about Tolkien and returning to Twitter. I feel as though those two things are opposites, but I'm not sure in exactly which way. Thank you all so much for joining me this evening. It is great to have you all here. I see a number of new people who are joining us for the first time. That is wonderful. There's something about the live session that is that is very, very special. So if you, dear listener after the fact, are listening to this in the days and weeks ahead, do try and make it to the live sessions. They're always a ton of fun. You guys are already being incredibly smart. Let's get into it because It turns out that despite only covering one chapter tonight, we have a ton of material to get through. I have a surprising number of slides, and I don't want to skip over any of them. I don't want to skim any of this material. So as much as possible, we're going to move quickly with purpose and with precision. See how that works out, shall we? We're going to begin, though, by talking about The Hobbit itself. What is this book? Because the book is a curious thing and is going to inform our reading of the story going forward. The Hobbit was published on September the 21st, 1937 by George Allen and Unwin. It is said that Tolkien began the story in the early 1930s while grading student papers. He reaches the end of one such collected, uh, collected answer book, an exam, uh, an exam answer book, and finds a blessedly blank page where struck by a moment of inspiration, he writes the immortal first line, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. He didn't know what that meant. He didn't know what a Hobbit was, but carried along by that inspiration, he began to tell the story of Bilbo Baggins. Tolkien had, by the time of The Hobbit's publication, already been working on the background to his legendarium, the the background of his mythology, for 20 years. He had created languages and histories, characters and stories, all within this same shared universe. But The Hobbit was the first novel that he published and wasn't, In its original conception at least, tied very tightly to that legendarium. We're going to talk a little about the revisions to this book in just a few minutes. Except that is not the complete history of The Hobbit, and we have to understand The Hobbit's history within its own fictional frame. While it is true that the professor wrote this book in the early 1930s and passed it out to his friends, including C.S. Lewis and effectively tumbled into a publication contract with Alan and Dunwin, the novel also has an internal history, an accounting of its writing and its publication, which takes place, as I said, within that fictional frame. The conceit is that The Hobbit is, in fact, an accounting of Bilbo's journey there and back again, written in part by The Hobbit himself much later in his life. The volume that Bilbo will eventually write, The Red Book of Westmarch, has been passed down through the generations from storyteller to storyteller until it reaches Tolkien, who effectively recapitulates the story using much of Bilbo's original tale and some additions all his own. And we can see the proof of that in the cover to the very first edition, which, I mean, let's just take a moment to, to marvel at this cover, it is a thing of unparalleled beauty. I adore the cover to the first edition. What we can see here though, around the frame, the the little black runes on the green border there, if you translate those runes into English, they read The Hobbit, or There and Back Again, being the record of a year's journey by Bilbo Baggins of Hobbiton, compiled from his memoirs by J.R.R. Tolkien and published by George Allen and Unwin Limited. Understanding this dual authorship is absolutely vital, I believe, in understanding the nuances of the text. Indeed, we have to consider three authorial voices, it might be argued, as we move through this story, and we must try to keep each distinct. We have Bilbo's account, of course, and the changes that he has made to his story to make it more accessible, more powerful, more palatable, more on that in a moment. We then have the narrator of the novel. And while it is easy to think of that as Tolkien's own voice, the character of the narrator, arguably, is just as carefully constructed as any of the other characters in the story. We'll discuss that a little as we move through the first chapter. Then we have the authorial voice of Tolkien himself. We'll try to keep track of these three voices, these three different but harmonious creative impulses as we move through the story particularly when we get to some key points in the adventure there are things within this book which only make sense on a metaphorical level and tracking the the fountainhead of that metaphor tracking the root if you like of that metaphor can disclose i think additional meaning we're going to talk later in this evening's session about the dwarves carrying with them musical instruments rather than, oh, I don't know, weapons, or an ability to ferry back from the Lonely Mountain the vast amount of treasure that they are apparently going to retake from Smaug the Terrible, that is an interesting inclusion. That is a fairy tale beat in a story that isn't necessarily, strictly speaking, a fairy tale at this point. It's a curious inclusion and we might uncover additional insight by speculating which of those three authorial voices decided that that was the best way to go. Who decided that the dwarves ought to be carrying musical instruments rather than the more traditional armament of an expedition to the Far East? If it was Bilbo, then that tells us something about the kind of story that he was telling to his peers and to the young hobbit children for whom he was presumably writing. If it was the character of the narrator in the sense that this is something that has been passed down through the ages, but is not perhaps of Tolkien's own conception, then that tells us something, I think, subtly different, that this story has become or has started to become somewhat mythic, has taken on the cadence of a fairy tale, even in its specific detail. And if this is an inclusion wrought by Tolkien himself in in his primary authorial role, then that tells us something too about his approach to this story, about what this story was intended to be. This, I'm aware, is a little little airy right now. We don't really have the specific detail that we need to analyze this, but keeping in mind the origin of the book within the fictional frame is, I think, vital. And it's vital in a couple of very, very specific very, very specific regards, because if you have a recent edition of The Hobbit, by which I mean basically any edition of The Hobbit, then you are not holding in your hands the first version of this story. Indeed, if you are holding any of the versions of The Hobbit published after, I believe, 2001, then you will have the little note on the text right at the beginning that describes the transformation that this manuscript has undergone, that this story has undergone. I mentioned the changes that Bilbo had wrought upon his own story in the telling of it, in the writing of it. Mere months after the publication of The Hobbit, sales were so high that Alan and Unwin approached Tolkien with a request for a sequel. Tolkien, at that point, pitched to them The Silmarillion, which ultimately would never be published in his lifetime. The Silmarillion was published posthumously Alan and Unwin thought that the Silmarillion didn't really have that mass market appeal that the Hobbit had enjoyed, so they encouraged him to write a second Hobbit adventure. That book would eventually become The Lord of the Rings, of course. But in the writing of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's perspective on The Hobbit began to change. He he desired a better integration between The Hobbit and his expanded legendarium. He wanted to take elements of The Hobbit and make them more important. Bilbo's magic ring is really what we're looking at here. Bilbo's magic ring, which he wins from Gollum in the chapters in the chapter Riddles in the Dark, which we'll get to in a few weeks, was originally in the first version of The Hobbit just a trinket. It was just a magic ring of invisibility. It was cool, but it had no great significance. By the time that Tolkien decided that the one ring would be the cornerstone, would be the the most important element in the sequel Hobbit adventure, the writing of its winning in The Hobbit looked suddenly insubstantial, suddenly a little too lighthearted. Gollum no longer made sense as a character if the One Ring was indeed the One Ring. So in 1951, three years after the, uh, three years before, excuse me, the publication of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien published a second edition of The Hobbit with some significant alterations. The riddles in the dark chapter changed significantly. We'll discuss those changes when we get there. They're actually fascinating to look at. But this wasn't simple revisionism. And this is where Tolkien elevates himself above all other fantasy writers. Because Tolkien didn't just change his story. He didn't just publish a second edition and invalidate the first edition. Rather, he made it clear that the first edition was the story that Bilbo told Gandalf and the other dwarves after winning the ring from Gollum beneath the Misty Mountains. The second edition of the story is the more true version of the story, which Bilbo confessed much later. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, But Tolkien was a medievalist. He understood that manuscripts evolved over time, that in the retelling, the story took on a life all its own, that stories were were living, were breathing, could evolve and change and respond to the readers and, of course, to the writers through whose hands they passed. That is another element, I think, which is foundational. That is another key element that we must understand in our approach to The Hobbit. That this is a story that has been passed down to us. This is a story that has been told and retold, that has been reshaped and refashioned to suit different audiences as the years pass. Originally, of course, long ago when there was more green in the world, an audience of hobbits and perhaps even of elves. But in the modern age, it's intended for an audience of human beings, of, of man, and for children, though the exact nature of that interaction in particular is one about which we might speculate. It isn't clear to me exactly how much, how much Bilbo intended this part of his story to be for children. We'll have the opportunity to talk about that as we get to some specific breaking points in, in the story as we move forward. Um, (laughs) and already I am completely lost. Already I cannot keep up with Twitter and I cannot keep up with the YouTube chat. You guys are are always, always so smart and always so swift. Yes. Yes. Good. Nicole says he was a pro at working in concepts and future writings that he hadn't thought of before, but somehow still made sense to the previous texts. If that makes sense, Nicole, not only does that make sense, that is beautifully put. He was a master of, this, this integrative approach to storytelling. He didn't want to simply retcon. That would have been an anathema to Tolkien. He would have hated the, the sudden and abrupt rendering, uh, rendering non-canonical of a previous story that he had told. Instead, he will find some way of making both stories fit some way of accounting for the evolution of the text itself, of the manuscript itself. And certainly when we get to Out of the frying Pan and Into the Fire, when we talk about Bilbo returning to the dwarves after his adventures under the Misty Mountains, and if you haven't read ahead, don't worry, that's not a major spoiler, we'll get there. When we get to that part of of the story, we'll be able to talk a little more meaningfully about the story that Bilbo tells and how that's represented within the fictional frame. It is an enormously deft piece of storycraft it is perhaps the most deft piece of storycraft that i can think of right now the 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 sophistication with which tolkien approached this story and made it compatible with the lord of the rings is dizzying and and startling It's worth noting, too, that there were two other versions of this story, not counting uh, counting primary adaptations. There are two other versions of this story written by Tolkien himself, or partially written by Tolkien himself. In the 1960s, after the publication and success of The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien returned to Bilbo's journey to the Lonely Mountain again, intending to rewrite the entire thing in a tone and a register more compatible with the lord of the rings he wanted to write the grown-up version of bilbo's story if you like as is true lamentably of so many of tolkien's projects he left it unfinished by the time of his death we will also see another version of this story right at the end of the there and back again series two years from now 18 months is perhaps charitable considering how much material we have to work through. But two years from now, probably, when we finish up The Lord of the Rings, we will have the opportunity to revisit Bilbo's adventure from a very different perspective as we look at the quest of Erebor in the appendices for The Lord of the Rings. So even within this, 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 core corpus here of tolkien's writing even within just the hobbit and the lord of the rings we see effectively three different versions three different recapitulations of bilbo's adventure the first edition of the hobbit then the second edition of the hobbit and then the quest of erebor and that's discounting even the details that we get of bilbo's journey in the text of the lord of the rings itself the references that are made to bilbo's great adventure into the east so all of this is to say that we must be extraordinarily mindful of the care and the craft that tolkien applied to the notion of this story as an inherited thing of great antiquity containing within its frame revisions and inconsistencies and incompatibilities and even as we'll discuss a little later a handful of anachronisms normally in the hands of any other writer we would dismiss these elements we would say that this is a product not of the final story, but of the the creative process itself. That we can see here the the scaffolding that was erected as the edifice itself was being constructed. But that's not the case with Tolkien. And he is perhaps, I always hesitate to make these, these broadly declarative statements, but he is perhaps unique, certainly among modern fantasy writers, in that these stories changed so so subtly in some ways so completely in other ways but always with such a great and profound sense of purpose and care and diligence that is one of the things that makes this kind of close reading of tolkien the rewarding experience that it is everything everything is intentional everything is is meaningful everything is significant that's not always true of modern fantasy authors. Certainly some of the authors who sought to inherit Tolkien's mantle wrote more traditionally. And that's no bad thing. Certainly not everyone can write the way that Tolkien wrote. He devoted his entire life to producing what is, in effect, a relatively small body of work. But that happened because his care was so complete, because his diligence was so profound. So. All of this is to say that I would urge you when reading Tolkien, when, when thinking about these readings, certainly for there and back again, never dismiss what you find on the page as a relic of that creative process. Be wary of that urge to say, well, this was probably just a mistake or this is just an inconsistency or this is just an oversight or this is a relic of some earlier revision, some earlier editorial pass." In any other book, by any other author, that would be entirely justified with Tolkien, we take more care, and we are rewarded in the taking of that care. Good. All right, let's. Uh, let me take a quick look here to see if I have missed anything terribly significant. I'm certain that I have. Of course, I will read back through all of your all of your uh, all of your great insights after we're done tonight. But uh, that's a very relaxing half hour that I get to spend. By the way, after the live session is over, I just get to pour a glass of whiskey and I get to sit and I get to read through everything. And you're all you're all brilliant. Yes. Oh, Jennifer says it should be noted that the Peter Jackson adaptation of The Hobbit changed the tone to match the Lord of the Rings, and really didn't work. I I would say both of those sentiments, Jennifer, are true. I wouldn't necessarily draw that direct causal relationship between those two things. Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Hobbit didn't rest just upon The Hobbit; it rested upon a lot of the material from the appendices of The Lord of the Rings too. There's a lot of extra story there that you couldn't tell with the same light-hearted juvenile might we say juvenile certainly mythic tone that the hobbit at least begins with though even the hobbit itself as a novel does not end where it began it does not end in the same tonal register as this opening chapter we're going to see the hobbit mature beautifully as a work of fiction as we move forward so That, too, is is, is more complicated. That's the wonderful thing about Tolkien. It is always more complicated and oftentimes more engaging and and more, more intentional than we might believe, yeah. Yes, there's a little bit of criticism here in the YouTube chat of the Hobbit movies. Guys, the Hobbit movies aren't good. It pains me to say it, but the Hobbit movies are not good. There are some fascinating things contained within the Hobbit movies, but they're not good. The first one, I think, is pretty good. The second one is decent. I suppose the third one is pretty much a flat out disaster. The third installment of the Hobbit trilogy is that moment when you realize that they didn't understand the story that they were telling. They didn't have a full and sophisticated sense of, of the entire story as it was presented. We'll talk a lot about the Hobbit movies when we get there, because at least you can say this when the Hobbit movies fail, which they do fairly frequently, they fail in interesting and very specific ways. There is a lot to say about these movies beyond their badness. We'll have a lot of time to get to that. Excellent. All right. Let's... (laughs) Too much CGI, says Simon. I'm inclined to agree. Yes. Yes. Yes, and and I've heard about this supercut of the Hobbit trilogy that, that basically strips out all of the material from the appendices and returns it to the core narrative I guess of bilbo's adventure i haven't seen that um, i certainly will by the time that we get to the end of it um by the time that we uh, by the time that we watch those movies i think we'll uh, that would make for a really interesting perhaps additional seminar session if we can find that online if we can make that available somehow to everyone who's taking part in the series then we might just watch that together and mention has been made of the rank and best cartoon versions we will talk about those too when we start talking about adaptation as i said Probably two years from now. We've got a long road ahead of us, you guys. Let's get to it, though, and begin, well, where else but with the beginning. Let's finally move into the first chapter of The Hobbit. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell. Nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole. And that means comfort. Back in the 2000s, the BBC ran one of their all-too-frequent national competitions back in the UK to decide the best opening line to a novel. Or perhaps it was the best first page of a novel. Or perhaps they did both within the span of a few years. And this was always a serious, serious contender. This is, I would argue, one of the all-time great opening lines, and not because it is impeccably crafted, not because it is surprisingly artful, not because it is poetic, but rather because it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to accomplish. Perhaps the most striking thing about this opening sentence here, this this, this expanded opening sentences, I suppose we have two there on the slide. These opening sentences, this opening paragraph, feels unlike anything else that you will find in Tolkien. He never wrote another paragraph that feels quite like this. He actually breaks a number of his own rules. This is downright folksy by the standards of the professor. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That, at least, is crisp and clean and perfect. But then we move into what is almost conversational, and we'll see that conversational element recur. And this is where I would draw the distinction between Tolkien's authorial voice and the character of the narrator. The narrator here is giving us this insight, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell and just something unpleasantly mellifluous, if I can combine those two sentiments. There's something something euphonious and yet not quite right about the ends of worms and a noozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. This is a powerfully effective introduction to the world of The Hobbit. It's a strange yet recognizable world. And what's most important as we move through the first few pages as we get the description of bilbo's home here is that they are familiar each of these elements is familiar yes he's living underground yes his door is round but everything else would have been commonplace to the average reader particularly the average juvenile reader at the time that is not going to continue through the book as i said much like Bilbo himself, we will look back on the hill from the perspective of the mountain, and I should pause perhaps to acknowledge, we'll we'll talk about this much, much later, but it is absolutely not accidental that hmm, that we bracket our experience of this secondary world with the hill at the far western extreme and the mountain on the far eastern extreme, and we go, of course, there and back again. Bilbo will look back on the hill from the perspective of the mountain and he will recognize that these things are comfortable and familiar and and redolent of of home and, and ease and comfort. That's purposeful, it's intentional, but it also gives us the perfect place from which to begin our adventure. We are introduced to this world in very familiar terms and that in part aligns us with Bilbo. He is immediately an accessible, understandable, likable character, I think. We understand him pretty much from the first page. And that's not indicative, I think, of Tolkien's desire to knock the edges off of myths and fairy stories. He didn't believe that children should be coddled. He didn't believe that children, through fiction in particular, should be kept safe from the evils of the world. Those of you who read on fairy stories last week may remember this this luminous passage. It is one of the lessons of fairy stories, if we can speak of the lessons of things that do not lecture, that on callow, lumpish, and selfish youth, peril, sorrow, and the shadow of death can bestow dignity and even sometimes wisdom. Tolkien believed firmly, believed powerfully in the I hesitate to say educational potential of stories but in the power of stories to broaden one's experience the power of stories to to bring the world to you to the reader and to therefore to therefore expand your mind to to add to you an element of of wisdom or as he says dignity and that will come we will face terrible torment in the pages of the hobbit but the graph of of realism versus versus fantasy as we move through the hobbit is pretty much linear things start at very comfortable and not all that magical by the end of the book things will be not at all comfortable and quite profoundly magical and that arc is is a beautiful thing to behold we will certainly track that as we move forward because it speaks to the underlying purpose of the narrative itself not the didactic purpose of the narrative not the educational purpose of the narrative tolkien would have hated the idea that there was simply a lesson to be learned from this book and once you understand the lesson the book has no further purpose but rather the the narrative impulse behind the story itself what is this story doing How is it seeking to move its reader? How is it seeking to to illuminate both the secondary world, the fictional world, to reward the investment of secondary belief? And thereby, how is it seeking to illuminate the primary world? How is it seeking to fulfill those three consolations, which, which Tolkien described in On Fairy Stories? How is it speaking to recovery, escape, and consolation? We'll keep track of that. As we move forward, dry heaving llamas in the YouTube chat. I hate to say it, but this is one of the best opening lines in novels. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good wife, uh, in possession of a good fortune, must be in want of a wife. I'm sorry. What happened there was that the YouTube window moved as I was reading the sentence. I didn't really need to read that sentence from the YouTube window, though. I must confess, I know that one. If you haven't uh, taken part in In Want of a Wife, my Pride and Prejudice seminar, then you should. That is an exceptional book, which I love very dearly. Yes. Peter on Twitter says, 30 minutes and we've discussed two sentences. Love it. It has been 30 minutes. We have discussed two sentences. Uh, Hey, you guys, we're going to run long tonight. I hope that's okay with everyone. (laughs) Garrett in the YouTube chat says, I would say that the Hayes Code and TV are as much to blame for Disney. Snow White's pretty dark for what you could get away with under the code. I take it we have a discussion unfolding here of, of... on the subject of the Disneyfication of fairy tales and the the general Disney lowercase D, I suppose if you can do that, Disneyfication of of children's culture, of children's narratives and and and, and storytelling, that is, I think, absolutely fair. There are a number of impulses in the twentieth century and and going back to the Victorian era where we seek to to limit the exposure of children to the unpleasantness of the world. Tolkien would have. Yes. Hated that quite powerfully. Yes. Kate Matt says on Twitter, quote, run long, unquote, drink. Doesn't count, Kate, when I do it on purpose. I can't trigger the drinking game myself. It has to be accidental. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, as, I, as I scroll down and try to catch up. Yes, let's move forward because we have to talk about Took and Baggins, we have to talk about Bilbo's parents, and we have to talk about, of course, his mother. As I was saying, the mother of this hobbit, of Bilbo Baggins, that is, was the famous Belladonna Took, one of the three remarkable daughters of the old Took, head of the hobbits who lived across the water, the small river that ran at the foot of the hill. It was often said, in other families, that long ago one of the Took ancestors must have taken a fairy wife. That was, of course, Absurd. But certainly there was still something not entirely hobbit like about them, and once in a while, members of the Took clan would go and have adventures. They discreetly disappeared, and the family hushed it up, but the fact remained that the Tooks were not as respectable as the Bagginses, though they were undoubtedly richer. Bilbo's parents, Bungo Baggins, and the famous, or in earlier editions of The Hobbit, fabulous. Belladonna took. I'll say before we get into this, I want to observe two quick things about this passage which will carry us forward. The first is the naming convention. We must look at the primacy of Tolkien's names as they relate to Bilbo's experience and to life as a hobbit. There is a hill. What should we call it? How about the hill? There is a river bounding the hill. What should we call it? How about the water? Hey, the hobbits all live in this town. What should we call it? Hobbiton. Excellent. We can all knock off early and go home for, I guess, second breakfast. That primacy is intentional. It gives each of these elements that mythic quality. These are the proper noun. Capital T, capital P, capital N. These are emblematic of the core nature of the thing. The hill is the quintessential hill. The water is the quintessential water. That, of course, will change as we move forward through this book. And by the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, names have become famously dense and complex. And names within the bounds of The Hobbit are not simple things. It's not called The Hill because that was the first idea that came to mind. It's called The Hill because it is totemic, because it is archetypal and mythic. We'll talk a lot more about names as we go forward. I also want to call out here, it is often said in other families that long ago, one of the Took ancestors must have taken a fairy wife. Fairy means elf. Tolkien, in his early writing, used those two terms interchangeably. When he uses the word fairy, he doesn't mean a diminutive little sprite, he doesn't mean Tinkerbell, he means an elf, he means Legolas, he means one of the elves that we will meet in due course within the pages of The Hobbit itself. So that's just a quick point of clarification. And with that out of the way, we can talk about the famous, sometimes fabulous, Belladonna Took. The two sides of Bilbo's heritage. This this discussion of the two sides of Bilbo's heritage introduces one of the most important themes of the entire novel. The contrast between the stay-at-home respectability of the Bagginses and the somewhat more quixotic, somewhat more adventuresome spirit of the Tooks. The Tooks, as we learn in that passage, may be more wealthy, but they are not as well regarded as the Bagginses precisely because they are more inclined to adventure. Bilbo will be tugged back and forth between these two sides of his character throughout this chapter and throughout the novel. But we must pay close attention to those two influences on and excuse me on those two influences and on how Bilbo mediates between them on how exactly he is caught between them and what exactly they are tooks aren't heroes later in the chapter Bilbo will think for a moment about the great vistas of the world who will be moved by the song of the dwarves and he will think of going to far places and wearing a sword instead of carrying a walking stick but what he's talking about is not the life of a mythic hero. He's not talking about being a champion. He's still talking about being a hobbit, albeit a hobbit in a larger world. He's talking effectively about a particularly impressive walk rather than what we might think of as a more traditional adventure. He is not an adventuresome soul. He is not, as we meet him at the beginning of the book, longing to to shake off the dust of this one pony town and go and have great adventures out in the wild the wild blue yonder he is both baggins and took and he draws strength from both sides of his character this is after all the story of there and back again it is the story of baggins and took and baggins but bilbo doesn't clean those two extremes as much as he seeks and, and is forced to, compelled to imperfectly integrate those two impulses. We are not seeing a Bilbo caught between who he wants to be and, and who he is or who he ought to be and, and destiny. Bilbo is both Baggins and Took, and will remain so all the way to the end of the book. And in fact, when we meet him in the Lord of the Rings, we will see again his, his Baggins impulse and his Tookish impulse. And a quick note here, too. Yes. Uh, yes, good. Um, okay, two quick things. Ray Trace on Twitter says, from the hill to the mountain, Tolkien maps elevation of the human condition onto the landscape. That is a stunning thought. We'll return to that as we discuss our final approach to the mountain, because, yes, as that becomes geographically real, um, and certainly, when we're looking back on the Misty Mountains and then backwards still to, to the hill, that's that's beautiful. That that's a really great thought. Yes. Um, and Kate Matt says it's the hill and the water because the hobbits of the Shire are focused on staying home and shunning the unfamiliar. Hmm. In part, I think though, I would generally be inclined to take a more positive perspective on that. It's not that. It's the hill because it's the only hill that matters. It's the hill because it's our hill, in part. That would account for, I think, the the local naming convention and certainly isn't incompatible with the authorial naming convention there. Um, and now I lost the other thing that I was going to talk about because YouTube has scrolled on all the way past me. Uh, Christopher says, this naming business of the, interli- this naming business, excuse me, is the inner linguist coming out of Tolkien. On the one hand, an incredibly prescriptive, life script, pragmatic conversation is happening, and on the other, generative adventure, yo. Yes, good. We can't forget Tolkien's philological impulse. We can't forget his his genuine and profound and and fundamental love of language. Tolkien loved language, loved the power of words more perhaps than anything else, certainly more than the construction of stories, more than characters, more than particular symbols or motifs or ideas or or philosophies. It was all about the language itself for him. This is, as has been said, an opportunity for Tolkien to basically indulge himself, to, to play in a sandbox with the best toys available. Yeah, good. Okay, So the point that I wanted to make (laughs) before I got distracted by your brilliance was simply this. It is easy, I think, to think of the Tooks as an outcast family because of their adventuresome ways. But we get our first suggestion here that Hobbit culture may not be as simple or as untextured or as monolithic as we might expect. And it may be, in fact, that hobbit culture in general is less staid and respectable than we might otherwise be led to believe. Bilbo knows, as he says to Gandalf in a few pages time, the stories of the young lads and lasses going off into the blue. More importantly, though, and this is one of these very specific applications of language, which in the hands of any other author we might overlook, we might speculate a little, but we wouldn't perhaps be compelled to delve more deeply. But in the hands of the professor, we are rewarded, I think, for delving more deeply. Belladonna Took is famous. Belladonna Took is fabulous. And neither of those adjectives, I would argue, is careless or casual. Tolkien could have said that Belladonna Took was infamous or notorious or wild or disreputable, but famous and fabulous too in its way. Famous suggests something else. You may not want to have Belladonna Took over for dinner or to have her as a neighbor, perhaps, but she is a fantastical figure within Hobbit culture. She is, in her way, celebrated even within state and respectable Hobbit culture. Mr. Baggins may not be as unusual as he appears to be. We'll continue to look at that as we move forward. But we must move on. Yes, good, 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 good. All right. Oh, there you are. Good, good, good. That was a real one. You get to drink for that. That wasn't forced at all. Okay, let's push on, though, because we have to talk about the arrival of adventure. We have to talk about our inciting incident, because so far, Bilbo has simply relaxed. He has had a leisurely morning. He is sitting outside. He is blowing smoke rings that are wafting up and away over the hill. But this shall not last. By some curious chance, one morning long ago, in the quiet of the world, when there was less noise and more green, and the hobbits were still numerous and prosperous, and Bilbo Baggins was standing at his door after breakfast, smoking an enormous long wooden pipe that reached nearly down to his woolly toes, neatly brushed, Gandalf came by. Gandalf. If you had heard only a quarter of what I have heard about him, and I have only heard very little of all there is to hear, you would be prepared for any sort of remarkable tale. Tales and adventures sprouted up all over the place, wherever he went, in the most extraordinary fashion. I would draw your attention, firstly, I think, to this unbelievably precise and and cinematic sweep of perspective as we move in to Bilbo's POV here. By some curious chance, one morning long ago in the quiet of the world, we are taking the broadest possible canvas here out of all of history, the entire world, one morning long ago when there was less noise and more green, hobbits were numerous and prosperous, and from that broad broad description the broadest possible description really we move downward we move closer bilbo baggins was standing at his door after breakfast smoking an enormous long wooden pipe that reached nearly down to his woolly toes neatly brushed from the largest and most expansive of scales we move ever downward ever inward closer and closer to bilbo until we alight upon the detail that he has brushed the hair on his toes that is genuinely beautiful it reminds me of the transition that we get right at the beginning of harry potter and the philosopher's stone there's a beautiful beat right at the beginning of that book where after the the introductory prologue when we actually meet harry we move across the dursley's living room and it is this cinematic movement of the camera that draws us in and in and in to Harry's POV. This to me feels very similar and is perhaps, I don't want to anger or alienate anyone, but is perhaps even more deft, even more finely tuned and crafted than the work of J.K. Rowling. Is that heretical? Am I going to get emails? I'm probably going to get emails. That's fine. This is <laughs> this is for me a genuinely beautiful passage. And and the more attention that you pay to it, the more detail it yields up. But then, of course, we must talk about Gandalf. I wonder when I read this, who wrote first this description of Gandalf? Because we have the intrusion of the narrator, and it is very tempting to think of this narrator as the same narrator that we encountered earlier. Gandalf if you had heard only a quarter of what i have heard about him and i have only heard very little of all there is to hear is that the same narrator who was telling us about the famous belladonna took is that the same narrator who was telling us that in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit well perhaps it's not incompatible certainly but it seems to me that when we are told that tales and adventures sprouted up all over the place wherever he went in the most extraordinary fashion We are about to have that same sentiment recapitulated to us in Bilbo's own words and I wonder whether this is a relic of the oldest version of the story if this is in fact Bilbo's introduction to Gandalf if this is him telling us all that Gandalf is and and can be and and will be it's ah it's just beautiful and of course we have the primary importance of stories right here. I am, yes, I am running long. So I'm going to spend no more time on that because we're going to move on to the other half of, of Gandalf's introduction and one of my favorite lines in the entire book, in fact. And, oh, good Lord, the first time I'm doing attributed dialogue in this particular reading. So Gandalf, uh, Bilbo is, is asking Gandalf's name at this point to which Gandalf replies, Yes, yes, my dear sir, and I do know your name, Mister Bilbo Baggins, and you do know my name, though you don't remember that I belong to it. I am Gandalf, and Gandalf means me. To think that I should have lived to be good morning to my Belladonna Took son, as if I were selling buttons at the door, Gandalf. Gandalf, good gracious me, not the wandering wizard that gave old Took a pair of magic diamond studs that fastened themselves and never came undone till ordered, not the fellow who used to tell such wonderful tales at parties about dragons and goblins and giants and the rescue of princesses and the unexpected luck of widows' sons, not the man who used to make such particularly excellent fireworks, I remember those. Old Took used to have them on Midsummer's Eve, splendid. They used to go up like great lilies and snapdragons and the burnums of fire and hang in the twilight all evening. You will notice already that Mr. Baggins was not quite so prosy as he liked to believe, also that he was very fond of flowers. Dear me, he went on. Not the Gandalf who was responsible for so many quiet lads and lasses going off into the blue for mad adventures. Anything from climbing trees to visiting elves or or sailing in ships, sailing to other shores. Bless me, life used to be quite inter... I I mean, you used to upset things badly in these parts once upon a time. I, I beg your pardon, but I had no idea you were still in business. You do know my name. Though you don't remember that I belong to it is one of the most beautifully composed and constructed sentences in a book replete with beautifully composed and constructed sentences the idea that the name is the core the name is the anchor of identity is an idea that speaks enormously powerfully to me that is that is such an incidental detail here And yet, much, much later, and I'm talking about a long way into the Lord of the Rings, we will be reminded, we will have cause to recall this early conversation. Name, though you don't remember that I belong to it. It's powerful stuff. More importantly, though, here we get to see Bilbo's perspective on Gandalf and thereby Bilbo's perspective on the world, because I think there is a great deal to be learned from the ways in which Bilbo describes describes Gandalf's accomplishments, achievements, his, his, his fame, certainly. Look at the progression here. We begin with the magic diamond studs given to the old Took. Diamond studs that fastened themselves and never came undone till ordered. Well, sure, because if Gandalf shows up on your doorstep, you're definitely going to lead with that time he gave a guy magic jewelry. But for Bilbo, that's exactly where he would begin. And more importantly, perhaps, for the audience of this book, that is where we ought to begin. We're looking at something that is magical, yes, something that is is fabulous, yes, these are diamond studs in addition to being magic diamond studs, but they're also relatively mundane. This is a gift of comfort. This is a hobbit gift right here. This is a gift that a hobbit would appreciate, certainly. Magic diamond studs that fastened themselves and never came undone till ordered. That is a singularly prosaic piece of magic for, uh, for Gandalf. Certainly, if we think ahead to the Mines of Moria, for example, if we think ahead to Pelennor Field, if we think there, there are numerous innumerable instances, in fact, where that kind of art and craft from Gandalf would be surprising. And yet here, it is a perfect point of introduction for the character. From there, we move on to stories, but not the stories which spring up around Gandalf, no, no. These are the stories that he tells. And the stories that he tells, it shouldn't surprise us at all, are fairy tales. Stories about dragons and goblins and giants and the rescue of princesses and the unexpected luck of Widow's sons. The unexpected luck of Widow's sons, a possible nod toward Eucatastrophe there. Widow's sons, famous for their ability to conjure you catastrophe or to, to stumble backwards into you catastrophe, I suppose would be a, a more apt way of describing that. Then, from stories, powerful and, and moving and compelling, we move upward into fireworks. Why on earth would Bilbo think of diamond studs and think of stories before he thought of fireworks? Because he's starting in the mundane and transiting into the magical. Fireworks, as we know, will become one of Gandalf's calling cards. They will become one of the things most closely associated with Gandalf, certainly by the time we arrive at at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. And then we transition into adventure. Not the Gandalf who was responsible for so many quiet lads and lasses going off into the blue for mad adventures. Anything from climbing trees, we should note, climbing trees, a mad adventure for a hobbit, to visiting elves or sailing in ships. And then we see that moment where Bilbo is getting caught up in his own enthusiasm. Life used to be quite inter... I mean, you used to upset things badly in these parts, once upon a time. And I don't think it's an accident either that we use that totemic phrase, once upon a time. I also want to call out, though, I think we will put a pin in this until we have better cause to discuss it later in the later in tonight's session I want to call out that sentence you will notice already that mr. Baggins was not quite so prosy as he liked to believe also that he was very fond of flowers this is our introduction to another of the essential I I keep wanting to say conflicts and technically I think they are conflicts but conflict suggests an antagonism and uh, a desire for resolution which isn't perhaps true, another fundamental duality here. We've got Took and Baggins as a fundamental duality, and here we have another fundamental duality that is inextricably linked to Took and Baggins, which is prose and poetry. Bungo Baggins was a man of prose. Belladonna Took, I am absolutely certain, was a woman of poetry. We'll look more closely at that a little later. We then move onward to the beginning of the unexpected party. Bilbo excuses himself, offers a not entirely sincere, not entirely insincere invitation to Gandalf to come to tea tomorrow. Gandalf takes a moment to mark on Bilbo's door the the glyph, which we'll discuss later in the chapter, and then we skip ahead to the arrival of the dwarves. Now, let's take a look at this list because trying to remember the dwarves <laughs> Is is tricky. Here are the dwarves of Thorin's company: Dwalin, Balin, Feely, Keely, Dori, Nori, Ori, Owen, Glowen, Biffer, Buffer, bomber and Thorin Oakenshield. Thirteen dwarves in total. You can delve into the supporting material to figure out some of the familial relationships. They are complicated, though perhaps not that complicated. They generally come in pairs. Dwalin and Balin are brothers. Fili and Kili are brothers. Also, they are the sons of Thorin's only sister. They are therefore Thorin's nephews. Um, it seems safe to conclude that Dori, Nori, and Ori are brothers, given the similarity of their names, but there's no confirmation of that anywhere in Tolkien's work. Owen and Glowin are brothers, and perhaps surprisingly, Bofur and Bomber are brothers, and Bifur is their cousin. All of these dwarves connected back through through either lines of blood or lines of fealty to Thorin Oakenshield. So don't worry if you get... Tangled up. Uh, don't worry if if. <sighs> don't worry if there seem to be too many dwarves. Arguably, there are too many dwarves. Let's talk a little about whether or not there are too many dwarves. Arguably, there are too many dwarves. I think that Tolkien does a masterful job of introducing the dwarves. We get first Dwalin, then Balin, and then we're increasing the number of dwarves, and we're doing that to comedic effect. Certainly, we are overwhelming Bilbo purposefully. That's enjoyable enough to see his his poor hobbit heart all but breaking at the thought of having to go without. That's a distressing thought for many of us, I'm sure. Um, that works. It is arguably the case that there are simply too many dwarves. And this would have been much, much worse if we were reading an earlier version of the manuscript of The Hobbit. Originally, the dwarves were given a roughly equal amount of screen time. They were given equal lines. Owen would pop up here and have a thing to say, and then and then Bomber would pop up here and have a thing to say. And as he revised the manuscript, as he went back and back and back again, revising the manuscript closer and closer to publication, he would either strip out lines completely, he would just remove lines of attributed dialogue, or he would consolidate those lines until we basically only have three or four or five dwarves who are actually significant, and then we have the ensemble. We'll track which dwarves are significant as we move forward. We'll look at their personal interactions with Bilbo, their personal relationships with Bilbo, and how we draw the line between the dwarves that really matter and the dwarves that don't so much. There is something powerful, though, to the idea of this this troop of of dwarves. Much later, um, when we get to Beorn, in, in in fact, after the Misty Mountains, he is going to describe. Uh, Thorin Oakenshield's company as a fine comic troupe. And there is a sense in which that's the spirit in which they are introduced to us. They're introduced in this almost musical, this almost vaudevillian way where we just keep doubling down. There is a kind of who's on first quality here to, to the introduction of the dwarves. But overall... I'm actually surprised how well it works. I'm actually surprised that, that Tolkien manages to keep the action moving forward. He manages to keep drawing us back to the door. There's a, a nice building of the, the the stakes here with each return visit. For me, it works. I do know that, uh, that uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it can be very, very difficult to keep up with. As Kate says here on Twitter, there's Thorin, the cute one, the fat one, and the one that looks like George Harrison in the 70s, yes. And Kim Clark says, there are always more dwarves. Certainly. <laughs> a throwback to our very first seminar together, Kim, and the uh, the novel Outlander. Yes, yes. Leslie Skiba, who is here in the YouTube chat with us, says, it's like watching a French farce suddenly. It is, absolutely. It is outright comedic. And that, again, I think, is intentional. Because we don't just get this, this somewhat farcical, somewhat comedic, somewhat lighthearted introduction of all of these characters, but then then we get to make the turn but the turn doesn't come until after our first piece of tolkien poetry Chip the glasses and crack the plates. Blunt the knives and bend the forks. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Smash the bottles and burn the corks. Cut the cloth and tread on the fat. Pour the milk on the pantry floor. Leave the bones on the bedroom mat. Splash the wine on every door. Dump the crocs in a boiling bowl. Pound them up with a thumping pole. And when you've finished, if any are whole, send them down the hall to roll. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. So carefully, carefully with the plates. This is our first, <laughs> our first example of Tolkien's poetry, and it is not, I think it's fair to say, with all due respect to the professor, this is not his finest work. But importantly, it's not intended to be his finest work. We're going to get to one of my favorite poems in about three pages time. But this is necessary character development for the Dwarves. The Dwarves as a unit, as an ensemble apart from Thorin. They're playful and they're joyous and they're mischievous and crucially plain spoken. There is little metaphor or symbolism to be found in any of the Dwarven songs. This is about as direct and as literal a poem as you're going to encounter, as a a song, of course. They're also, though, good-hearted. They will tease Bilbo, but will behave as good guests in his home. Their manners are not the manners of hobbits. They are not studied in quite the same way that hobbit manners are studied. But they aren't entirely bad either. And this, too, will give us a really interesting point of contrast later in the book. Lauren Bingham has shared a, I I will retweet this, Lauren Bingham on Twitter has shared a helpful guide in gif form distinguishing between the cool Feely and Keeley brother and the hot Feely and Keeley brother. Spoilers, Keeley is the hot one. (laughs) He certainly is hot dwarf. Good. Robert on Twitter says, too many dwarves, pretty good. Made them unmanageable for a growing leader, for a growing leader, excuse me, Bilba Baggins. Thorin would mass whomever he could. That's absolutely true, Robert, though we should distinguish there, I think, a little between Thorin's plan and a plan that makes any kind of sense. We'll talk about this as we move. Uh, perhaps we'll actually say this until next week when we have a better opportunity to, to consider the dwarves' actual plan, because... Yeah, I'm not at all sure that I understand what it is that they're planning here. Oh, and and uh, Liz Stevens, who I'm about to mention, in fact, as we move forward, Liz Stevens says, I like this. It reminds me of my friends who sing spontaneous silly songs. Yes, absolutely. This is certainly spontaneous because it has Bilbo's name in it and they didn't know Bilbo's name until they showed up. So it's unlikely that this is a standard dwarfish song for for singing after a a long dinner. It's it's much more spontaneous than that. It's much more enthusiastic than that, joyous than that, I think. So I really appreciate it. Not the most complex poetical construction that we'll get from Tolkien, but still I think really rather good. And I just mentioned that I was going to talk about um, that I was going to talk about the wonderful Liz Stevens, to whom I am indebted for calling to my attention a three-beat that is contained here within this first chapter of The Hobbit, because after the song and after the dwarves have have put away all of Bilbo's crockery and they have tidied the place up and and everything is once more returning to to a kind of normality, they return to the parlor where they find Thorin and Gandalf blowing smoke rings. And this is, is... A beautiful observation i think we get three people blowing smoke rings here in the first chapter we have bilbo outside right at the beginning blowing smoke rings that waft away over the hill then we have Thorin's smoke rings which are purposeful and and dynamic and obedient they obey his innate authority he can send them wherever he wants including behind the first anachronism that we get in the pages of the hobbit there ought not to be a clock on Bilbo's mantle. Hobbits, we will learn, we could infer from what we've seen already, do not have that technology. It's unlikely that Bilbo would have a clock. But this, I think, is one of those moments when when it's tempting to simply label it a mistake, to simply label it an anachronism, to simply label it a joke even, and then to move on. But I think maybe what we see here is evidence of the intrusion of other authors, other authorial voices, that this isn't necessarily a relic of Bilbo's first manuscript. This could be an addition by Tolkien himself, or by the narrator, at least. So yes, certainly an anachronism there, we'll we'll keep track of those as we move forward, because they're always interesting, I think, and always, always, uh, always open interesting avenues of conversation. So we have Thorin's obedient, controlled, responsive smoke rings, and then we have Gandalf's smoke rings his smaller predatory sorceress smoke rings now on the one hand this is a striking contrast if for no other reason than because it emphasizes how much Bilbo's quiet life of, of domestic tranquility has been invaded by adventure capital a adventure there are sorceress goings-on in his parlor now there are smoke rings being blown that he himself cannot blow that that seem to be under some kind of of control some kind of, of magical or sorcerous control so that's certainly powerful and potent and the idea of gandalf sitting there with these smoke rings hovering around his head you know glowing with this light suggests perhaps yes this is suddenly magical this is suddenly otherworldly this is a point of transition for bilbo but it also represents, I think, the removal of one of Bilbo's primary comforts. Primary, not necessarily in the sense that this is the most important thing to him. He's not necessarily going to think back fondly on blowing smoke rings, though he will. That's not his primary association with the comfort of home, as we'll see later in the book. But this is how we're introduced to him. He is at peace. He is absolutely integrated with his world right at the start of the, of the story. And he's blowing smoke rings. He's outside, crucially, blowing smoke rings that disappear off across the hill. Here we are inside. And this pleasure that, that Bilbo enjoyed so innocently has been turned to a darker purpose, it has been turned to a greater significance. Bilbo's life is not safe and is not secure at this point. And the representation of the smoke rings, both his and then the the combined thorn and gandalf smoke ring battle in the parlor these are this is representative i think of just how fully bilbo's life has been disrupted even if he himself does not yet recognize it yeah good okay um from there though and i'm Oh, I had the slide for that I had the slide for that but you know what we can return to that the next time um, okay let's take a look at the first I think truly successful piece of poetry that we get this is the misty mountains cold song far over the misty mountains cold to dungeons deep and caverns old we must away your break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold the dwarves of yore made mighty spells, while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep, in hollow halls beneath the fells. For ancient king and elvish lord, there many a gleaming golden hoard they shaped and wrought and light they caught to hide in gems on hilt of sword. On silver necklaces they strung the flowering stars, On crowns they hung the dragon fire, In twisted wire they meshed the light of moon and sun. Far over the misty mountains cold, To dungeons deep and caverns old, We must away, ere break of day, To claim our long-forgotten gold. Goblets they carved there for themselves, And harps of gold where no man delves there, Excuse me, where no man delves, there lay they long, and many a song was sung unheard by men or elves. The pines were roaring on the height. The winds were moaning in the night. The fire was red, it flaming spread. The trees, like torches, blazed with light. The bells were ringing in the dale, and men looked up with faces pale. The dragon's ire, more fierce than fire, laid low their towers and houses frail. The mountains smoked beneath the moon. The dwarves, they heard the tramp of doom. They fled their hole to dying fall beneath his feet, beneath the moon. Far over the misty mountains grim, to dungeons deep and caverns dim, we must away ere break of day to win our harps and gold from him. It is honestly no exaggeration to say that we could have spent the entire session this week talking about this poem it is spectacular and this is one i think of the most successful moments of adaptation in the first hobbit movie the rendering of this this poem this this song of course We're, we're using poem and song interchangeably it's difficult to talk about this as a song when as the text points out it is incomplete without its music the poetry of this piece does work on the page, turning it into a song and having it, having it hang in the air so beautifully with such a light touch in the adaptation. If you haven't seen the first Hobbit movie, I genuinely think without exaggeration that it is worth watching that three hour monstrosity of a film for this scene. It is spectacular. So what do we see here? I'm going to leave this slide up even longer than I usually do so that we can track it as we move forward here. We see the same stanza repeated three times effectively. Far over the misty mountains cold, to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must await your break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold. The second time that we circle back around to it, to claim our long forgotten gold. Not to seek, but to claim. Long forgotten? Long forgotten by whom i think is an interesting question there what does the gold represent there because the gold itself not forgotten clearly that's why we're all here but the gold as a representation of what it is to be a dwarf of their home of their culture crucially that's a powerful idea then when we conclude with the last repetition we change those rhyming words far over the misty mountains grim, to dungeons deep and caverns dim, we must away your break of day to win our harps and gold from him. Let's look at the turning point then, I guess, in the poem, first of all, which is that second repetition. We have these first four stanzas where we're describing the, or I guess we have our introductory stanza, we have our, our statement of intent here, and then we have three stanzas looking at what life was like beneath the lonely mountain what life was like in the kingdom of erebor as we know it to be called from the lord of the rings but by which name it is never referred to in this book the dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. we're talking about craftsmanship we're talking about acts of creation. We're talking about the practicing of one's art and skill and excellence in the pursuit of beauty. We're creating beautiful things. And if you've read The Lord of the Rings, yes, it is true that that third line there in the second stanza stands out. It certainly jumped out at me as I was reading this time. I think I had never made the connection before, but in places deep where dark things sleep, we may be thinking of Khazadun. We may be thinking of the Balrog. We'll talk about that uh, about a year from now. For ancient king and elvish lord, there are many a gleaming golden hoard they shaped and wrought, and light they caught to hide in gems on hilt of sword. They're creating beautiful things, and we should note, they're capturing light. Look at the imagery here of, of light and dark. They are beneath the earth, they are beneath the fowls. But this is a world of light. We have flowering stars. We have dragon fire. They meshed the light of moon and sun. We have an abundance of light wrought by dwarven craft beneath the earth. But what's more important than that is the inclusion of community, a sense of the dwarves connection with the outside world for ancient king and elvish lord. They were creating these things for others. They were creating these things and sharing them, selling them. It doesn't really matter if this was an act of charity or commerce. They were creating things and sharing them with the world. They were connected with the world. So then we have the turning point of the second repetition of that introductory stanza. Far over the misty mountains cold, to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away your break of day to claim our long forgotten gold. And now look at how the tone of the poem shifts. Goblets they carve there for themselves, and harps of gold. Where no man delves, there lay they long, and many a song was sung unheard by men or elves. What has changed here? We see the dwarves becoming insular. We see them withdrawing. No longer are they shaping golden hordes and, and hilts uh, and jams and on hilts of swords for men, for elves. No, now goblets for themselves and harps of gold where no man delves, there lay they long, and many a song was sung unheard by men or elves. They're becoming secretive, they're becoming insular. And that is the turning point. Because once that starts to happen, <clears throat> Excuse me, because once that starts to happen, once they have become obsessed, once they have become fixated on their own creations, and if you've read *The Lord of the Rings*, if you've read *The Silmarillion*, that is certainly something that you will recognize. Once they have become obsessed with the 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 things that they have wrought, doom befalls them, and then we move into what is effectively the third part of the poem. The pines were roaring on the height the winds were moaning in the night the fire was red it flaming spread the trees like torches blazed with light again we have light but this is not the the pure white light of the flowering stars or arguably the dragon fire the dragon fire here being metaphorical of course in the first instance and then terrifyingly literal in the second instance that opposition is fairly pleasant used symbolically first and then as i said literally the second time the bells were ringing in the dale and men looked up with faces pale the dragon's ire more fierce than fire laid low their towers and houses frail look at what we're seeing here with this pattern of destruction perhaps the most interesting thing is that the dragon is absent the dragon does not do these things. The dragon here is resolutely in the passive voice when he is referred to at all. The pines were roaring, the winds were moaning, the fire was red, the trees blazed, the bells rang, the men looked up, the dragon's ire was more fierce than fire. But the anger laid low the towers and the houses frail. We don't get the The whiplash of a tail or the the sweep of a wing to destroy these houses. No, the anger itself was enough. And then the resolution. The mountains smoked beneath the moon. The dwarves, they heard the tramp of doom. They fled their hole to dying fall beneath his feet, beneath the moon. Beneath his feet. He did not stamp on them he did not crush them no they fell beneath his feet again the passive voice and then we get the final recitation of that that introductory stanza far over the misty mountains grim grim now rather than cold to dungeons deep and caverns dim the light within them has been extinguished we must away ere break of day to win our harps and gold from him It is now personal. This isn't treasure hunting. This is an act of vengeance. It's not enough to recover the gold. It's not enough to have the gold. We have to take the gold from him. And not just the gold, but the harps. And the harps were created for the dwarves and the dwarves alone. And it is no coincidence, of course, that Thorin is, as they're singing this song, playing a finely wrought golden harp. What we see here is the dragon's sickness, as it'll be called later in the book. What we see here is the corruptive influence of loving too well, loving too much, loving too fiercely objects of beauty. It is right and just that you should love the thing that you made, but you must not jealously love the thing that you made i'm aware even as we're discussing this that it's very difficult i think to to extract this meaning from the first chapter of the hobbit i'm i'm looking at this from the perspective of someone who has read and loved and studied this book certainly by the end of the book this will be recast in a in a very different light but In order to to cue us up for a fruitful discussion in order to keep track of the dragon sickness in order to keep track of the idea of this this jealous and selfish love we must I think acknowledge it here and for those who know where to look for those who are primed either by experience or by some profound insight that I certainly lacked the first time I went through the book those who understand that this is perhaps not an entirely noble quest. What Thorin and company want isn't just impractical. It isn't just odd and perhaps poorly planned. It is, in its own way, destructive. The seeds of the last act of the book, the turning point at the end of the book, are absolutely sown here, right in this first chapter. I find this poem to be completely extraordinary the subtlety of it the depth of it the complexity of it I have read this poem I do not know a hundred times and I still get new things out of it when I return to it what do you guys think how does the poetry work for you in Tolkien Robert says on Twitter the gold here is the dwarves older glory like a heritage not just a pile of trinkets it is in part I think that's absolutely fair but it also is the actual stuff it's also the the Hmm. Yes, it is the gold as, as a representation of their glory, but it is also, as they make clear with reference to the harps there, the, these jealously guarded harps that made songs that no elf or man ever heard, that this is about the, the, the treasure itself, that it is about the gold itself, at least in part. And those two ideas, of course, are not mutually exclusive, and nor are they completely, completely inextricable from one another. They are, they are complexly bound, and we need to track that balance as we move forward. It is good and noble and just for the dwarves to love their own creations, to love these amazing and beautiful things that they have made. It's not okay for them to love those things too much. It's not okay for them to to fall toward the drunken sickness there. Yeah. Good. Um <laughs> the Twitter chat is just racing on. Gene says, I'm interested to look I'm interested to look at it more on this reread as an adult, but I feel that like Lord of the Rings and the Summerillion have more nuanced in, in Tolkien's Christianity than the Hobbit. Um certainly more more depth. I think that's certainly fair to say. Um but I think once you look very carefully at The Hobbit and you see the 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 you see the tidal forces beneath the surface, you see what it is that drives the action, fundamentally what it is that drives the action, and we're going to alight on that right at the end of tonight's reading, in fact, what it is that drives the action, you will see evidence, I think, of, of Tolkien's faith there. Yes. Yeah. And I see you're picking up on a, on a previous discussion. This is what happens when I track backwards through the discussions. I find uh, the last person who said yes. yes good the cat's corner says hey it's almost like tolkien has a running theme in his books arguably arguably yes all right this week more than most i think um yeah definitely uh (laughs) definitely uh get in touch after the seminar is over after the session is over email me uh alistair StoryMonk.com. I'll I'll read all of your thoughts. You guys are fantastic. Oh, or you can head on over to the forum at forum.storymonk.com where I finally got around to setting up forum space. That's actually the perfect place because then we get to share the discussion with everyone. So uh, shortly after the podcast goes up, which will either be later tonight or early tomorrow, depending on how long it takes to extract the audio and do all the magic that I have to do to it in order to make it listenable. um, After all of that is over and the podcast is available, the forum space will show up automatically over there, forum.storywonk.com. It is 25 after 10 and we still have a long way to go. So let's keep pushing on. I must at this point actually, um, yes, good. I must at this point credit uh, the wonderful Sue via email who sent a great email with with some wonderful insights for this week's reading and also included, a really provocative question, I suppose. A, a, an interesting thought here, which I guess we'll alight upon here, uh, because we're talking about Smaug and we're talking about the terrible destruction that that Smaug uh, caused at the Lonely Mountain and and to the men of Dale. Sue wrote. I wonder if you'll be speaking to the absence of female characters in The Hobbit. I love the references to Belladonna, beautiful lady, Took. Belladonna being an ancient cure for what ails you, and at the same time dangerous, is like adventures, which is an observation that I really appreciated. The other female reference in this week's chapter had me wondering. Thorin, again speaking of Smaug, says, he used to crawl out of the great gate and come by night to Dale and carry away people, especially maidens, to eat until Dale was ruined. Is this reference, Sue asks, to maidens a throwaway, or are we to make something more of it? Here's the thing: there are no active, present female characters in the Hobbit. There are none. Not one. You can look as hard as you like. There are no female characters in the Hobbit. No, no female characters who actually take action within the proceedings. There are effectively five female characters in the Hobbit at all distressingly only one of whom is named. We have, of course, Belladonna Took. We have her two sisters, the other two daughters of the old Took, who don't get names. We get a reference made later to Feely and Kili's mother, and then we get the wife of Girion of Dale right at the end of the book, and that is it. This isn't so much a book that fails the Bechdel test as much as it raises two middle digits to the bechdel test and saunters away um women in the the works of tolkien this may be a topic that we should save until we get to the lord of the rings but since it is so relevant uh in our discussion of the maidens here i think i think we can alight upon it yes it is conspicuous it is odd that there are no female characters effectively within the pages of the hobbit but it is not and i say this emphatically it is not an indication of any kind of underlying misogyny or any any underlying sexism, to use a, a term that has been all but neutered. Tolkien loved women, I think it is fair to say. When writing The Hobbit, he's calling back to a literary tradition that, that tracks all the way back to Beowulf. And in those stories, the role of women was usually diminished, was usually, if not absent entirely, diminished it's odd that there aren't any female characters here but once we look at the broader scope of tolkien's work we see female characters who are capable who are possessed of agency and integrity and and great skill and craft and care um they are generally powerful they are generally capable they generally and this is this is a thought to which I am indebted to Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. You can find his podcast on on iTunes, and you can find him at thetolkienprofessor.com. I hadn't heard this thought before, but he once said in in one of his lectures, I believe, that anytime there is a romantic entanglement in Tolkien, it usually features the woman condescending to the man condescending in the best sense of the word that that generally speaking all men in tolkien marry up they all do because the women are spectacular and i'm aware even as i'm saying this that it sounds as though i'm excusing the professor's approach to female characters particularly in the hobbit it is a problem it is an issue it is odd and somewhat uncomfortable i think but at the same time i think there are explanations that are not necessarily in the spirit of justification i think that we can understand why this is the case and why it is uh, a well-intentioned circumstance without necessarily without necessarily overlooking it entirely yeah someday we're going to talk about baron and luthien and that will be a great discussion but yes certainly if you are if you are mm, upset by. If you are, are sensitive to the absence of women, particularly in The Hobbit, then I can understand that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and uh Nicole here on Twitter, we can forgive Tolkien for the lack of female characters because he gave us Luthien. She's amazing enough to carry the weight of like seven book series. That is absolutely true. Yes. Yes. We will... Uh, I'm getting perilously close to promising a Summerillion series, aren't I? Okay, we're not doing this right now, but we're probably going to do this someday. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Victoria says on Twitter, yep, my only complaint with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, lack of women. It's better in The Lord of the Rings because Eowyn, but still, yes, yes. We do get exceptions. And and the exceptions that we get are singular. I, Again, hesitating before I make a broadly declarative statement. I think that every single female character in The Lord of the Rings is Excellent. Um am I overlooking anyone? I don't think so. I know that some people don't care for Arwen, but but I'm I'm more of a fan. But certainly, yes, yes. AON is is spectacular, yes. Good. Gene says in the YouTube chat, seminar goals will pressure Alistair into the Solmarillion. Yeah, look. I think you need to set your goals a little higher, there, Gene. I think you need to undertake a more challenging, uh, a more challenging task. All right. Since it is ten thirty, we must, must, must push on because we must talk about Gandalf. We must talk about Gandalf's perspective on Bilbo. Let's take a look at the slide first, because this is an interesting one. Of course there is a mark, said Gandalf. I put it there myself. For very good reasons, you asked me to find the 14th man for your expedition, and I chose Mr. Baggins. Just let anyone say I chose the wrong man or the wrong house, and you can stop at 13 and have all the bad luck you like, or go back to digging coal. He scowled so angrily at glowen that the dwarf huddled back in his chair, and when Bilbo tried to open his mouth to ask a question, he turned and frowned at him and stuck out his bushy eyebrows till Bilbo shut his mouth tight with a snap. That's right, said Gandalf. Let's have no more argument. I have chosen Mr. Baggins, and that ought to be enough for all of you. If I say he is a burglar, the burglar he is, or will be when the time comes, there is a lot more in him than you guess a great deal more now than he has any idea of himself. You may possibly all live to thank me yet. Now Bilbo, my boy, fetch the lamp. and Let's have a little light on this. Why does Gandalf, back at the beginning of the chapter, why does Gandalf laugh before scratching the glyph on Bilbo's door that starts this entire expedition? Why does he insist, despite all evidence to the contrary, despite all common sense, that Bilbo is the appointed burglar? What is it that gives him this certainty? This is one of the most subtle introductions of one of the most subtle themes that we're going to get through the entire book. We will be confronted in due course, in just a few chapters time, in fact, by words of actual prophecy. We will have an actual prophetic message inscribed upon Thorin's map. And we might wonder in that moment at Gandalf's motivation in this moment. Keep track of these things happening. Keep track of things happening at just the right time. Keep track of these moments, not of you catastrophe, because we don't have that, that calamitous fall into disaster and that last moment of grace that last moment of, of unsought grace crucially we don't have the calamity here but this does feel somehow pre-eucatastrophic this is a necessary step so that the story can play out as it will what is guiding gandalf at this particular point point? and it can be difficult perhaps to separate the Gandalf of the Hobbit from the Gandalf of the Lord of the Rings. Certainly we know from later readings that he has no great prophetic power. If we didn't know that, would we be inclined to think in this passage that he does? Is he foreseeing a necessity? Is he understanding somehow that, that, that Bilba will be necessary by the end of this adventure? Or is he being guided by something more subtle? Is he being guided by chance by luck. If Bilbo hadn't been outside smoking, blowing smoke rings over the hill, would Gandalf have stopped? Would Gandalf have gone to Bilbo specifically? Or was he looking for something more general? Was he looking for happenstance? As he says to Bilbo, he says that he's looking for a hero or a champion. He's looking for someone. What do you think? (laughs) <laughs> the cat's corner says, "By the Valar, we're not getting into the Valar. That's a whole long conversation." Oh, though, for those of you who were hanging out on Twitter with me the other day while I was speculating openly about future projects, I do think that I'm going to record um, a brief lecture about specifically about Aule and Yavanna. If you've read The Silmarillion, then you know what that means. If you haven't read The Silmarillion, then those are random names to you. I want to record a little, a little encapsulation of, of one of the stories in the Silmarillion to talk a little about the history of the dwarves, to talk a little about their place within the the, the theological construct of, of Middle Earth. I think that there's some really interesting um, dimensionality to that that I want to explore a little bit. It's not going to be easy to make space for that within one of the live sessions. So I think there, there may be, as we move through this, a few little Silmarillion supplementals as I record little short 15, 20-minute lectures. They'll go out in the regular podcast feed, so if you happen to see one pop up on a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday afternoon, then then that'll be a little bonus information that you can uh, consider homework. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Let's see here. The Cat's Corner says, I realize that all the comments of mine that Alistair reads are in all caps. That one, ironically, not in all caps. I see all. I know all. (laughs) The caps do stand out as I'm scrolling through. It's true. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it's not so much the capitalization of the letters as it is the emphasis behind them. I like that very much. Um Coral says maybe he just understands the way things work in this world. He's lived so long, he probably has seen the patterns of questing and adventuring. He could be sure because he's seen it before. I like that a great deal. That hadn't occurred to me at all, but yes, the 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 unfolding of events in in Familiar patterns is absolutely a part of Tolkien's legendarium. We will see that throughout the Silmarillion. We will see that even throughout the Lord of the Rings. Arguably, there are, are echoes. It's not. It's not quite a recapitulation of events. It's. It's not that the same event happens again and again and again. But there are common features. There are. Do not, if you live in in Tolkien's world, do not throw any kind of celebration where you leave yourself unguarded. Do not throw any kind of of mass outdoor banquet when you leave yourself unguarded because odds on you are going to be attacked by someone. That happens again and again and again as we move through the history of Middle-earth. So that idea of familiar patterns, that idea of of almost, almost recurring motifs, I think, is a really interesting one. Yes, good. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I think I've got it. (laughs) I think I've said everything that I need to say here. Um, Yeah. Oh, oh, this is lovely. Yes. Liz Stevens says, I wonder if he remembers, too, a bright-eyed young Bilbo listening to stories and watching the fireworks and saw that tookishness and put it in his back pocket for future use. That's lovely. Yes, it, it may be that he was indeed seeking Bilbo. I think there's a fair argument to be made that that's the case. The part that Yes, I think it all rests upon our interpretation of his laughter. He laughs before he inscribes the glyph on the door. And whether you read that as, as generous or less generous, whether you read that as as more celebratory or as more mocking and critical, that can change your, your view, I think, of, of Gandalf's motivations at that point. But yes, either way... We get to track this idea of prophecy. We get to track the idea that perhaps, contrary to what is made explicit in the story, things are foretold. We are guided by something. There is some force, it would seem, compelling us forward along certain paths. That may be narrative. That may be, as Coral says, if we're recognizing particular motifs and particular conventions, we're recognizing archetypes, we're almost being pulled along by the story because it is a story it may be the intrusion of fate or destiny it may be crucially and perhaps most importantly particularly by the time we get into the back half of the story i guess it may just be luck gandalf may just be trusting to luck which is not an insignificant thing good Yes. All right. Let's. Um, oh, Nicole says that's part of Gandalf's role. I think he's here to channel and implement the wisdom that is innate to the Maiar in order to help Middle Earth. Yes. I can't really go into a description of of the Maiar right now. Suffice it to say that that yes, Gandalf is is not. Uh, Gandalf is not a man. To be a wizard in Middle Earth is not to be human. He is greater. Than that, we'll we'll get a better discussion of that as we move into the Lord of the Rings too. Okay, let's keep going because I have one more slide to get to, which is Bilbo choosing to negotiate. He has throughout this chapter been swayed by the dwarves. We get that moment after listening to the the Misty Mountain song, where he is all caught up in it. He is effectively told a story. He is he is presented with this story into which he invests his own secondary belief. Or I guess, since this is a story being told within a story, this might be a tertiary world. He may be investing tertiary belief, I guess. But he is enraptured by it. And that's the moment when he imagines going out on this grand adventure, when he imagines wearing the sword. And then when he is later challenged, prior to the previous slide, when he's challenged by Glowen, who says that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar, his pride is wounded. And he reasserts himself again that he will, he will go and fight the wereworms in the last desert. He will go and, and undertake great and courageous things, which he probably wouldn't. But nonetheless, he has that instinct. And yet, this is the same Bilbo who falls to the floor shrieking, struck by lightning, struck by lightning, when he is overwhelmed by the potential danger of the dragon on the Lonely Mountain. This, though, is one of our key turning points. First, I should like to know a bit uh, excuse me <clears throat> first, I should like to know a bit more about things, said he, feeling all confused and a bit shaky inside, but so far still tookishly determined to go on with things. I mean, about the gold and the dragon and all that, and how it got there and who it belongs to, and so on, and further. Bless me, said Thorne. Haven't you got a map? Didn't you hear our song? Haven't we been talking about this for hours? all the same i would like to i should like to hear it plain and clear said he obstinately putting on his business manner usually reserved for people who tried to borrow money of him and doing his best to appear wise and prudent and professional and live up to gandalf's recommendation also i would like to know about risks out of pocket expenses time required and remuneration and so forth by which he meant what am i going to get out of it am i going to come back alive Bilbo wants to appear wise and prudent and professional and live up to Gandalf's recommendation. I love that those two things may well be mutually exclusive. That's lovely. What really stands out to me here, though, is Thorin's line Bless me, haven't you got a map? Didn't you hear our song? And haven't we been talking about all this for hours? Bilbo needs to have it explained to him. He needs to have a better sense of what is actually happening here. And Thorin says, We told you, we sang that whole song. Hey, remember that song we sang? We've already told you what's happening here. And we know that you understood it because you were moved by it. But Bilbo is still a Baggins. And that means that he is caught in this duality between prose and poetry. He has had the poetic version of Smaug's destruction of the Lonely Mountain. His driving out and, and slaughter of the dwarves, his destruction of Dale. He's had that in poetic form, but he hasn't had it in the prose form. And now, as he shifts toward his most Baggins ish persona, his business manner, usually reserved for people who tried to borrow money of him. I don't think that Tooks care so much about that, but Baggins certainly do. As he shifts into this persona, he needs the prose. He needs for everything to be laid out in the plainest possible language, even compared to the relatively plain and direct and and unmetaphorical language of the Dwarf song. There's not, again, a great deal of symbolism there contained within the Misty Mountains song, but that still is too metaphorical, is too poetic for Bilbo. So he needs the prose version before he can commit. And that I think is where we will draw this to a close because I have already long much lo- already run, excuse me, much longer than I intended to. From this point of course Bilbo retires for the evening as do the dwarves and he has this wonderful moment right at the end of the chapter where as he is drifting off to sleep he can hear thorin singing the song. That is our first chapter, that is our inciting incident, that is our call to adventure and we will begin that voyage, that that journey into the East next week right here. We will have, let me call this up just to clarify everything here, the next session, The Hobbit Chapter 2, Roast Mutton, 9 p.m. Eastern, next Thursday, January the 26th, 2017. As I've said before, I will try and move some of these live sessions around. I know people have trouble getting here on a Thursday evening. There is no good time. If there were a good time, Where I could could hold the session and everyone would be able to make it, then I would absolutely do that. Unfortunately, um, that's impossible. It's always inconvenient for someone. So I will try and move these around. I think next week's definitely going to be the Thursday. I think the week after that may also be the Thursday, but then perhaps the following week I'll try and either do an afternoon session or a Sunday session. I'll do some kind of of movement of the schedule there so that you guys can uh, so that, that more of you, I guess, or, or different folks, at least, can, can, uh, can make it to the live session. It has been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you all this evening. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you so much for your commentary. Thank you so much for, uh, for keeping me moving forward and for keeping me honest about taking down these slides before I leave them up all the time and just forget to, uh, forget to look at the camera at all. Thank you for hanging out with me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you have a moment, and you haven't already, I would really appreciate it if you could head on over to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. We get a very small window when we launch a new podcast to attract attention, to attract an audience. And the larger the audience, the more of this I get to do, it's it's a virtuous circle where everyone plays and everyone wins. So if you have a minute, there's a link in the show notes where you can go and and click the itunes link there and and leave a leave a rating leave a review i'm very appreciative and grateful always guys thank you so much i will be back next week with more until then take care